we're going to be in the scriptures today, so if you want to open up the book of Psalms and find Psalm 88 in your Bible or in your device, go ahead and do so. We're going to have it up on the screen as well so you can follow along. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. How many of you have read this book? All right. It's a, it's a little bit over 50 years old now, and this was a well-loved book in my household, and we're keeping the well-loved copy in case we might have any grandkids uh, in the near future because we want to share with them the story of Alexander. But as you might know, Alexander's bad day started the night before when he went to bed with gum in his mouth, and he woke up with gum in his hair. He tripped over his skateboard, dropped his sweater in the sink, and it just went downhill from there. At the breakfast table, his brothers had their boxes of cereal, and they had uh, neat prizes in their boxes, but in his box of cereal, all he had was cereal. His school teacher didn't like his picture of an invisible castle. He got in a fight. <laughs> Afterwards, they went to the dentist, and his brothers had no cavities, but guess who had one? <laughs> Alexander. His day just went from bad to worse, and he began to fantasize about maybe moving to Australia, where he could start again, because surely in Australia there are no bad days. But um, as the day started to wind to a close, they had dinner, and guess what they had for dinner? Lima beans. Meatloaf would have been bad, too, but lima beans. And he hates lima beans. There was kissing on TV, and he hates kissing. And when he went to bed, he had to wear his railroad tra uh, train pajamas, which he hates, and the cat didn't want to sleep with him, but rather with his brother. And so it was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But the question is, is what happens when we have terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? And what happens when those days turn into terrible, horrible, no good, very bad weeks? And when those weeks turn into seasons that are terrible, horrible, no good, and very bad? What happens when those seasons seem to last and last and last? We're going to talk today about what happens when that goes on. And not just specifically bad things happening in our life, but what happens when the more we seem to pray to God, the more distant he seems to become. What happens when we have those seasons in our life where it seems like not only is God responsible for what's happening, but he seems almost like an adversary. Have you ever had seasons like that in your life? I know I have. And so we're going to look today at what older Christians used to call the dark night of the soul. Let me read to you from an article that R.C. Sproul wrote on this. He said, the dark night of the soul. This phenomenon describes a malady that the greatest of Christians have suffered from time to time. It was the malady that provoked David to soak his pillow with tears. It was the malady that earned for Jeremiah the title, The Weeping Prophet. It was the malady that so afflicted Martin Luther that his melancholy threatened to destroy him. This is no ordinary fit of depression, but it is a depression that is linked to a crisis of faith, a crisis that comes when one senses the absence of God or gives rise to a feeling of abandonment by him. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever felt your soul beginning to creep in this direction? There's a sneaking suspicion that God has abandoned you? We're going to be in a psalm today that addresses this issue head on. 
And I wanted to, to tackle this today because we just finished up our series in Philippians, which was a series about finding joy right where you are. And that theme of joy was, was just weaved throughout. And next week, we're going to start our new series called The Gospel According to Ruth. And in the opening chapter, we're going to meet a woman who experienced a prolonged dark night of the soul, so severe that she changed her name from Naomi to Bitter. And so today, as we look through this psalm, I want us to be on the lookout for the honesty of true lament, the honesty of these words that are being spoken, and also the doggedness of true faith. And I just want to give a shout out to my seminary professor, Dr. Ralph Davis. He was the first person to, to teach me this, and uh, I listened to that recording over and over again, and I really have no idea where his thoughts in and my began. So we're just going to give credit for this whole thing to him. Any defects are mine. I lost my notes to that when I was in Peru. I had a hard drive crash on me, and it was irrecoverable, so I don't have it anymore. But it was so, so good. I still remember sitting there and listening to him walk through this and just being blown away by it. So, so let's pray and ask God to meet us right now. Some of you may be going through a season like this. Some of you may have had it in the past. Some of you, this might be brand new to you, and you haven't even really thought about it. So let's ask the Lord to teach us today. Father, we thank you for the revelation of yourself and your purposes in the Holy Scriptures, how you are working to redeem and to restore all things in the person of Jesus Christ. And included in that revelation of yourself is a psalm that you inspired that contains brutal honesty, words that we might shrink back from actually saying, but it also contains a, a doggedness to faith. And so help us, Father, as we think through this today, and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go, verse 1. This is how this psalm begins. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. He begins this by, by addressing Yahweh. In our scripture, it's that word Lord. You see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's an indication by the translators that it's referring to that ancient name that God revealed himself by to Moses. You remember that time when God appeared to Moses on the eve of redeeming his people out of enslavement in Egypt. And God appeared before him, or spoke to him rather, in, in this burning bush. And Exodus chapter 3 tells us that Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That's the history of the, this author writing this psalm. He knows about God's great deliverance, God's great salvation of his people in redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. He knows this name by which God has pledged himself as far back as Abraham to bring about worldwide blessing and salvation and renewal of all things. And so he cries out to him, O Yahweh, God of my salvation, let me just make a comment on that word salvation. Many of us read into that word all that we know about Jesus, and it's not bad to do so. But he lived hundreds of years before Jesus, and he's facing a crisis, and we don't really know what it is. But that word 
salvation might for us sound better if we hear him say deliverance. Oh, Yahweh, God of my deliverance, I cry out to you day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Two times in this opening passage, he describes his prayer as a cry. And I appreciate him just highlighting the fact that he wants God to hear him. David Pallison once said, prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. And here the psalmist is in a bad place. And he wants God to meet him here in this bad place. And so he's bringing his real life before his real God with these real prayers and asking the Lord to hear him. But what's interesting is we're going to see that this, this psalm is in the voice of lament. And lament, or the voice of lament, as Walter Brueggemann has said, seeks to have a difficult conversation with the king of the universe. I love that. A difficult conversation with the king of the universe. God, I need to talk to you about some stuff. And so he says in verse 3, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. He says, my, my soul is full of troubles. You remember that, that song by the Soggy Bottom Boys, Man of Constant Sorrow? It has that line, I'm a man of constant sorrow. I've seen trouble all my days. But the psalmist never heard this, but he'd probably say, yeah, I can, I can relate. You remember the last time that your soul was full of troubles? That's where this man finds himself. and He, he seems to be on the verge of dying. He says, my, my soul draws near to Sheol. And Sheol, in the ancient world, was the world of the dead, where the souls of people just go and exist without their bodies, which still lie in the grave. This wasn't necessarily a, a sharpened theological point in the thinking of Israel. Their concern really was here now in the land of the living. This is, this is what God has promised to redeem. This is what he has promised to restore and to renew. And so when people died, they lied in the grave. And so that was just called Sheol. So you can think of Sheol basically as, as a tomb. And this is where he feels he's going. Verse 4. I am counted as those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. I have here on this slide just some of the words that are highlighted here which, which draw our attention. He's finding himself in a bad place. Not only is his, his life drawing near to Sheol, he describes it as the pit, the, the place where people die when they're slain, where it seems like God remembers them no more. Eugene Peterson has a, a paraphrase of the scripture called the message, and this is how he paraphrased these verses. I'm written off as a lost cause. One more statistic, a hopeless case. Abandoned as already dead, one more body in a stack of corpses, and not so much as a gravestone. I'm a black hole in oblivion. The psalmist feels like he's been utterly forgotten. He's, he's, he's drawing near to the grave. He feels his life leaking away, and he's crying out to God. And it seems the more that he cries out, the less comfort that he finds. Do you remember that, 
beautiful psalm, Psalm 23, called the Shepherd's Psalm. It has that line in it that says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. What beautiful words of comfort. And it's, it's wonderful to be able to, to live in that space of Psalm 23. But the psalmist, the Psalm 88, isn't there. And the reason he can't rest there, even though he's going through the valley of the shadow of death, is because he doesn't feel that God is with him. In fact, he feels like God has become his adversary. Look at what he said in verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your works. How, how can you find comfort when it seems like God himself is the one who is against you, that the creator of the universe has become your enemy? That's where this man is living. And he has this little phrase here, Salah, which most experts in the Hebrew scriptures believe is a musical term, which is just a pause, maybe like a little interlude. And so he says, stop and think about this. God is the one who has put me in this place. He's the one who's overwhelming me. He's the one who is not answering my prayers. Think about that. In verse 8, he continues, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Not only does he sense that God has abandoned him, but all of his friends, all of his companions, his buds, they have left as well. And it seems like God has turned them against him. He says, you've made me a horror to them. That word horror in the Hebrew is, is an abomination. It's a detestable, loathsome, repulsive thing. His friends look at him and they just draw back. They don't want anything to do with him. He says, I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. He can't get out of this situation. He is stuck. He is stuck in this moment. And there's no help coming anywhere. You remember the last time you cried so long and so hard that your eyes just became dim? Your, your eyes are puffy and your world just kind of shrinks. And this is where he is because he's overwhelmed with sorrow. And so he asked God some questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Those who've gone on to the grave, do they jump up and shout praise to you? The answer to that, from his perspective, is no. Who are the ones who shout praise to God? It's the living, right? It's those who can gather together in assemblies like ours to sing praises to God. But God doesn't work wonders for the dead. The departed don't rise up and praise him. Selah. Stop and think about that. Some more questions. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? That word Abaddon simply means the place of destruction. Do you hear choirs, God, standing up, singing, great is your faithfulness, having come from the dead? There are no choirs in graveyards. No one's singing God's praises there. Verse 12. 
Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in a land of forgetfulness? He, he remembers back to the wonders that God has worked in the history of his people. I mean, the reason they exist is because God worked wonders to get them out of Egypt. Remember those ten plagues, those ten wonders? And he highlights God's righteousness. The fact that God does right. He does what is just. But are those things remembered in the grave? They're not. And God, that's where I'm going. And so he says in, in verse 13, But I, O Yahweh, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Do you hear the desperation in his voice? God, I'm crying to you. My prayer comes before you. He, he talks about in the morning. That's when you expect God, the, the new day. Remember, God's mercies are new every day. So the new day comes and he prays. And nothing happens. There's no change for him. So here's a question. Why does the psalmist waste so much breath lamenting before the God who feels like an adversary? I don't know about you, but in those seasons, my inclination is just to go kind of stoic and shut down. I just don't want to feel anything. Because if I felt something, I might, I might say something that my Christian culture tells me it's not appropriate to say to God. So I just kind of shut down. But here the psalmist is, is writing poetry about it. And he, he's, he's wasting breath in a sense because he's speaking to this God who feels like his adversary, his enemy. So why would God even listen to him if that's the case? Here's the reason. Because he assumes that the God of mercy cares about his misery. He assumes that the God of compassion is aroused by his suffering. That's, this is his only hope. Where else can he go? This is his only hope. He knows the character of this God who's redeemed his people. And he assumes that this God, at some level, does care about him, is aroused by his suffering. So he goes on in verse 14. O Lord, why, O Yahweh, O why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you feel like this before God? That he has cast you away, that, that he's not answering your prayers, his face is hidden from you? This is the worst feeling that a follower can have. Another psalm puts it like this. You hid your face. And I was dismayed. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 88 is feeling. He's dismayed. He's, he's discouraged. He's freaking out. Because his only hope has gone silent. Some of you may know about the Westminster Assembly. This was a group of parliamentarians and theologians that were called together in 1643 to to revamp the Church of England, to restructure, to review their creed, and to, and to make any amendments. What they ended up doing was just writing a brand new statement of faith, which is known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And there's a very interesting place in that Westminster Confession in which the brilliant theologians said this, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways, and one of which is 
by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, that is his face, and allowing even those who reverence him to walk in darkness and have no light. That's a beautiful description of what's going on right here with this psalmist. God's countenance has been withdrawn. The the lights of of his face and his blessings has been withdrawn, and, and he's walking in darkness. And so he's calling out in darkness. And he says this in verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. We see here this isn't just a momentary spell that he's going through. He's been suffering since he was a young person. And again, we're not sure what that was. Maybe it was some kind of disease that's bringing him now close to the grave. We're just not sure. But he says to God, I suffer your terrors. You are frightening me. I am scared of you, and I am helpless. There's this beautiful passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, that I've gone to over and over again. When I visit people who are in the hospital, I'll oftentimes read this passage to them. It says this, But now, thus says Yahweh, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers, they shall not overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Such a beautiful promise and that imagery of, of passing through the fire and not being burned and experiencing flood waters around you, but the assurance that they're not going to overwhelm you. But the psalmist in Psalm 88 is not in Isaiah 43. That's not where he's camping out. In fact, it seems like that promise has evaporated. He says in verse 16, your wrath... Think of this, the fire of God's wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. This God who's promised to to walk with them through the fire, to be with them so the floodwaters do not overwhelm him, is gone. He's not there. And he feels like he's about to go under. Verse 18 says, You have caused my beloved, which might mean his spouse. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This man is going through a dark night of the soul. This is something that I hope you never find yourself in. I hope it's it's a place that you never experience. Someone says, well, this is terrible. How does this situation resolve for him? Great question. Let's look and see what the text says next. Wait a minute. That's the end of the song. If you've read through the book of Psalms, you know that they are filled with psalms of lament. And they usually are, are songs about how adversaries are circling around, how, how things are going really bad. And they articulate this, and these are wonderful prayers. But if you know anything about the Psalms of Lament, they always end on a good note. God came through for me at the last moment. I've seen the deliverance and salvation of my God. Praise his holy name. But this psalm? There's no praise at the end. 
In fact, if I could put this up visually, it might go something like this. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Eugene Peterson paraphrased it like this. The only friend I have left is darkness. That's where the psalmist ends this. And as we read this psalm, that's where we're left. Watching the experience of this man who has no hope, who has no light, who feels himself going under. And God, who should be his best friend, is not there. His best friend is darkness. In fact, when you read this in Scripture, in, 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 uh, in Hebrew, the last word of this psalm is darkness. And we don't like that, do we? <laughs> We don't like, it's very uncomfortable, isn't it? This tension. And so someone asked the question, is, is this reality or simply his perception of reality? Is this really what's going on or is this simply his perception of what's going on? And I'm not really sure how to answer that question. I think it's the latter. But does his perception of reality make it any less real for him? Someone says, well, wait a minute, has the, has the psalmist given up hope? Is he thrown in the towel? Is he walking away from the faith? Let me answer that question by asking you another question. Why do you think God included this psalm in the middle of the prayer book of the Bible? Why do you think it's in the Bible? Why do you think it's in the scriptures that you hold? Why do you think it's there for you to read? Because there may be times in your life where this is exactly where you find yourself. All the promises of God, all the verses you memorized seem to evaporate, and you find yourself in the depths of despair, in the depths of woe, as we sung earlier. And God knows that you need words to be able to speak to him. I don't know about you, but going through that, I, I felt the psalmist saying some things that just sounded a little bit irreverent, right? But God is trying to teach us to speak the real words that are on our heart. See, if we say, well, I can't say that to God. It sounds irreverent. I, I, need, to, I need to use more holy-sounding words. But if that's not where you are in that moment, why are you being fake before God? You see, God has this psalm in the Scriptures for you said, you know it's okay for you to be brutally honest with God. He already knows what's going on in your heart. Before you say a word on your tongue, God already knows it's there. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so this psalm is included in the Bible as a great example of a stubborn determination to trust God no matter what. You see that, my friends? Where else can this psalmist go? There is nowhere else to turn. He might end up dead, but if he dies, he's going to die praying to Yahweh, the God of his salvation. He is clinging to him with a dogged faith. Job, who went through a tremendous amount of suffering, put it like this, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. That's exactly what this psalmist is doing. Even though God doesn't come through for me, even though I feel like he's my enemy, 
I'm still going to hope in him. I'm still going to trust that somehow this is all going to work out together, even if I die. One author of a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which I would commend to you, said this. These psalms of lament give us permission, even encouragement, to lay our struggles, lay out our struggles, even if they are with God himself. Isn't that good? Even if you get in those moments in your life where you are mad at God, it's okay to tell that to God. It's okay. He can handle it. This psalm is there to give you the permission to be brutally honest with God. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that freedom to be able to do so. Derek Kidner, in his commentary in the book of Psalms, said, the very presence of these prayers of lament in the scriptures are a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. And so what I want you to see, my friends, is lament is not a denial of true faith, but rather a dogged expression of it. When, when, when you cry out to God and you're frustrated with him, when you don't know what he's up to, when you feel abandoned to him, by him, to continue to pray after him, to seek him, even when he's frustrating you, when you don't understand and he seems elusive, that is faith. You see, a cry of lament is not a lack of faith, but rather a desperate faith that is seeking understanding. So I could put it on a point. Let's sharpen it like this. Lament is the defiant hope that assume, assumes God cares about human suffering and misery just like we do. It assumes that God cares about what's going on in my life just like you do. And someone says, well, with all this pain and suffering, why not just get rid of God? Wouldn't it be easier just to, just to wipe that part of your life away? Just to go on as if he doesn't exist? Some people opt for that. But my question would be, well, what good would that do? John Lennox, professor at Oxford and a speaker about Christian, Christianity, says, removing God from the equation does not remove pain and suffering. It leaves them untouched. But removing God does remove something else, namely any kind of hope. And even though the psalmist is here hanging on to a thread of hope that he feels is about to break, he's still hanging on to hope. And so, as the author says, lament is the language of the people who believe in God's sovereignty but live in a world of tragedy. So my friends, let's Let's apply this to a life in a couple of different ways. The first point of application is this. Let's get comfortable using the language of lament. Let's get comfortable using this kind of language. Someone says, nope, I don't like to cry. I hate being vulnerable. Lament just sounds like weakness. And let me say, if that's where you are, that's exactly where I am. I do not like to cry. I hate crying. Since I turned 42, tears jumped to my eyes pretty quickly, despite my best efforts to stuff them down. I don't, like, I don't like that feeling. I don't like being vulnerable. I'd rather be stoic and not feel anything at all than to cry. But here's the thing. Scriptures tell us that Jesus wept. Jesus, the Son of God, wept. 
He felt the sorrow and the tragedy of this life. Michael Card, in a book called A Sacred Sorrow, which is now back in print, I would commend it to you as well. He says, Why are Christians, of all people, embarrassed by tears, uneasy in the presence of sorrow, unpracticed in the language of lament? It is certainly not a biblical heritage, for virtually all our ancestors in the faith were thoroughly acquainted with grief. And our Savior was, as everyone knows, a man of sorrows. And then he said in another place, it's an odd thing. Jesus wept. Job wept. David wept. Jeremiah wept. And they did it openly. Their weeping became a matter of public record. Their weeping, sanctioned by their inclusion, by the inclusion in our Holy Scriptures, is a continuing and reliable witness that weeping has an honored place in the life of faith. My friends, these laments, these tears in Scripture, are there for us to see, to help us understand that even our tears are precious in God's sight. Jesus himself, who wept, was a man of constant sorrow, acquainted with our grief, experienced his dark night of the soul. We're told in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, when the sixth hour came, I'm sorry, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was well-versed in the Psalms of Lament. Here, he's quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the thing. This is not just his perception of reality. This was reality. When Jesus hung on the cross, he hung there and had the sins of people like you and me placed upon him. And there God condemned in the flesh of Jesus our sins. He really was separated from God. And he went through that. And that dark night of the soul to guarantee that all who trust in him would never actually really be uh, abandoned by God, even though sometimes it may feel that. So here's a second point of application. Let's not forget to remember the gospel. You see, my friends, you and I, with the vantage point we have now, living after the time of Jesus, can see farther than the psalmist did in Psalm 88. He didn't have the, the message of the cross where if you and I had been there on that good Friday when Jesus was crucified, having been his followers, you would have thought maybe God had fallen off his throne. He had lost control. But he was never more in control than when those, uh, those soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross because God was working all things together for the good. Those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, even the evil intentions of humans. Scriptures tell us in the book of Isaiah, surely he, that is Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. My friends, maybe, maybe when you go through times of affliction, think about that. Personalize that. Surely he has borne my grief. Surely he has borne my sorrow. I'm not bearing it all alone. But Jesus, with his broad shoulders and strong soul, is there upholding me in the midst of this also from the book of Isaiah. He became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. I love that. In all your affliction, when you experience it, 
When you go through that dark night of the soul, Jesus feels it too. He empathizes. He sympathizes with you. He knows what it's like to go through that. I love the way that Tim Keller put this so well in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He said, we turn from God, but God did not abandon us. Only Christianity, of all the world's major religions, teaches that God came to earth in Jesus Christ and became subject to suffering and death himself. He is... I'm sorry, <laughs> make sure I got the right screen up here. I'm sorry, my, my iPad just freaked out on me for a second. See what this means, he says. Yes, we do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it is so random, but now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge himself into the greatest depths of human suffering. He understands us. He has been there. And he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Someone might say, but that's only half an answer to the question why. Yes but it is the half we need. I don't know about you, but I find that so comforting. God often, and maybe always, will not tell us the reason why you and I go through certain things. But it cannot be that he doesn't care. He's already proven that. Jesus rose again from the dead, having suffered the grief that we placed on him from our sins. And he promises to work all things together for good. And even though we don't have all the answers... That is an essential answer that we need. We sing the song at Christmas time. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd, friend. That's some of our favorite Christmas hymns summed up in a beautiful statement. He came to earth to taste our sorrows. So that first point of application was, let's get comfortable using the language of lament. The second one was, let's not forget to remember the gospel. And here's the third and final point of application. Let's allow lament to help us trace out God's storyline. We put this graph up from time to time here at Mercy Hill Church, the four-part story of the gospel, which begins with a, a good creation and God installing Adam and Eve to be representative humans over the entire human race, but they fell and with them plunged all their descendants into rebellion against God. But God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to bear the consequences of our rebellion, and he has promised to restore all things. That's what we long for, <laughs> that restoration of all things in Christ Jesus. And so let's remember, when we find ourselves in these dark places, that bigger story that speaks more volumes than the particular story we find in our moment. You see, the language of lament, or I put it, <laughs> reverse that, Lament is the language of the pilgrim who lives in the already but not yet. Already we've tasted of the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, but not yet have we seen the consummation in all things, the renewal of all things. But when we get there, it's going to be beautiful. As the book of Revelation tells us, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That means the psalmist's eyes from Psalm 88. That means your eyes when you suffer and cry. God himself will wipe those away. So the story tells us that our hearts, our broken hearts, our shattered and fractured hearts will be mended. And what a beautiful reminder that is. 
I'll let Matt Smethurst, an author and pastor, have the final word. Heaven will not wipe away our tears. Angels will not wipe away our tears. Loved ones will not wipe away tears. But Jesus will, with nail-scarred and tender hands, one by one by one. Amen. Mercy Bill, may Jesus sustain you through the dark nights.